We lost the tunes, Rob. There we go.
Hello, everyone. Welcome to the For We Are Many podcast. All we have to lose is our chance. Uh, I want to say thank you again to Don and Trisha for this lovely uh, banner that you see on your screen right now. I'm your host and comrade Rob, and today we're going to be reading uh, from Bobby Seal's book, Seize the Time, the story of the Black Panther Party. The link for that is in the comments, and it will be in the show notes uh, when this hits podcast platform. What up, what up, what up? My name is Don. I, I I had something for this. I mean, sorry. I saw a guy making a guitar out of bullet shells, and it distracted. <laughs> right on. Facebook. Hey, what's up? How's it going tonight? Hello, Natalie. See you're already here with us. What's up? It's Trisha. This is the voice that you are hearing right now. Welcome, comrades. Don, you want to get your favorite thing out of the way early today? <clears throat> All right. <laughs> As you can see, ladies, gentlemen, and uh, non-binary comrades that are watching this or listening in the future, our Patreon is now live. www. Hold on, let me retry that. www.patreon.com/slash/for-we-are-many. If you look on there, you will see. Various amounts of donations ranging from one dollar to a few dollars to a few hundred thousand dollars. Those ones are saved for two special people. Elon, buddy, pal. I know every week, twice a week, I tell you that if you just donate, the videos will stop. The pictures will stop. The uh, Thursday, Wednesday night book readings, the poetry slams outside your house, the the me dressed in a large owl costume, well at least a um <clears throat> an owl head, and nothing else. It'll all stop. All you have to donate is your money. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. So today, uh, as I already said, the link to the book is uh, in the comments. And uh, today we're going to be starting on page 23. Um, that's going to be the name of the section. Sorry. Too much multitasking here. Wow. Using the poverty program, there we go, sorry, is the name of the section. Ugh. Again, that's on page 23 if you want to read along. And I'm just gonna I'm just gonna jump into this, but before I do, I want to uh, remind everybody how this works. We're gonna be reading from the book and also making commentary throughout. And uh, especially when we're able to point out how they're using 
dialectical materialism in the formation of the revolutionary organization. Anything uh, anybody wants to say before we dive right in? I think that we should, um, instead of saying N-word every time they use the N-word, we should say expletive deleted. Radio edit. Redacted. Hmm. That's not a bad idea. That's not a bad idea. Radio edit. (laughs) So, um, we're starting in June 1966. It's the summer before the party was actually organized. I took a job at the North Oakland Neighborhood Anti-Poverty Center as a foreman in the summer youth work program. If you can't tell by that first sentence, most of this book is written from the perspective of Bobby Seale, the author of the book. Um, anyway, the job paid six sixty or six seventy a month. I had previously worked in a poverty program and had been fired because I was teaching the young, uh, the youth, Black history and teaching them not to be sucked in by the dollar thirty-five an hour that they were given. I tried to get them to not think in Uncle Tomish ways, but always to think in ways related to Black people in the Black community surviving and Black people in the Black community unifying. Through working in the poverty programs, I was able to meet a lot of the young cats who would later become lumpen proletarians. Um, for those of you unfamiliar with that term, the lumpen proletariat were pretty much written off by Lenin and Mao, um, but they refer to the criminal underclass. They're working class too, they just don't have work. Uh, Natalie said, Don, tell them you will accept their stocks too if it's a money problem. Musk and Bezos yeah. just donate now. Listen, listen, I'll accept their stocks, their bonds, that fucking yacht that Bezos has. Both oh, yachts. dude. The, the yacht. I'll, I'll accept the yacht that he parks in his yacht. And he doesn't park it in his yacht. He parks it by his yacht. He takes a small dinghy over there. He had to get it because, you know, the bigger yacht didn't have room for a fucking helicopter pad on it. So how's he supposed to get out to it? Jesus and by Christ. small dinghy, we mean like 40 foot sailboat. Yeah, another yacht that he takes to his yacht. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His I yacht. Mean, he takes, he takes a yacht from his yacht to his yacht and he parks it in his yacht. You can't make this shit up. Well, I mean, it's hard to pay property taxes on something that stays in international waters. This is true. This is very true. The same summer, um, again, 66 is this that summer. Huey was a community organizer, so Huey and I were together quite often. Huey knew quite a few of the older cats in the community. Because of his articulateness, uh, he was always welcomed by the brothers in the community who were generally referred to as the criminals. The summer work program provided jobs for about 100, 25 girls and 75 boys. They worked in the community, cutting lawns, cutting hedges, digging up grounds. They were supposed to do repairs on fences and steps and things like that, but the equipment wasn't available. There were four such programs, so only 400 kids were employed by the poverty program. My objective in the program was to teach black American history if I could, and teach them also some degree of responsibility. Not teach them responsibility in old establishment terms, but in terms of their own people living in the community. In the poverty program, the young brothers many times would try to be slick and think they were pimps or that they could out-gamble or out-talk or out-rap anybody. Some of them would fool around and carry knives and I'd have to hip, uh, hip them about the knife carry. 
In working with the poverty program, I never wanted to use the authoritarian type old school tactics, which I had completely rejected. And I knew these young brothers rejected. They drank wine, shot dice and things like that. I knew there was a way to reach these brothers because I wasn't too much different from them. I knew how to drink wine, how to shoot dice, play cards and chase women. Sometimes I caught cats playing cards and I'd have to make them stop. I'd say, you cats can't play cards, man. You've got a job to do. But I generally refused to be authoritarian. I did a lot of things that were not conventional. Um, I tried to make the brothers understand that they had a right to set a price on the labor. I knew that in the future, uh, they would probably be workers, especially if we ever changed the system. If I had 10 cats on a job, I would say, all right, you got six hours of work today. You get one hour for lunch. Now, if all you cats get together and do this job, uh, you can do it in four hours. I know you can do it easily in four hours. Then I'd say, I'll let you off for the next two hours and I'll see two of you still get your pay for the entire six hours. The administrators up there probably didn't know what I was doing, but I was trying to make the young cats respect their labor. At the same time, I was trying to make them respect responsibility and to go, uh, and to go ahead and do things. This is related a lot to my past. When I was younger, like 13, 14 years old, my mother would say, make up the bed, clean your room. My brother and I would loll around for half an hour or 45 minutes trying to sneak outside and trying to get out of it. Then one day I figured out, I said, hell, we could have cleaned up the room in 10 minutes, made the bed and been gone. I was using this discovery that I, uh, I had made as a kid to show these brothers that with the labor they produce, if they really get on it and get down to it, they really could do the job. Every once in a while, I'd catch a lazy cat. When I'd catch one, I'd go to where he was working and go right to work, and we'd work real, real hard, and he'd start get, uh, and really start getting things cleaned up. Instead of trying to dock the pay or fire the cat, I'd get all the other brothers together, and by me working too, I'd try to show them. Then the rest of the brothers would be falling behind me, and they would ridicule the lazy cat. This was a means uh, by which a lot of the cats could begin to see that they could get things done. Mr. Allen, the director of the poverty program, came from the old school, very strict, very hard. He wanted to do right, but his ideas and his notions related to old conservative people. In essence, they say, uh, do what the system says to do and you'll be all right. But that isn't the truth at all. Sometimes Mr. Allen would find things out and he'd dock a cat's pay. The young brothers really try to be slick. They try to run jive games and they don't realize that all the people aren't foolish. The very first day, I got all the cats in the room, and the first thing I did was run down a little black history to them. I kind of stimulated their interest a little, and I recited Burn Baby Burn by Marvin Jack. The poem was actually uh, was a catchy little thing, but a lot of cats were never able to explain that poem in terms of the political, social, and economic repression, repression of black people. The poem's meaning is that the soul of the black man must bring up enough courage to rebel and resist. If they understood that poem, they would begin to have a revolutionary political ideology. They would see, as the Black Panther Party has, that spontaneous uprisings are not what's happening. <clears throat> but as Fannin said, violence can be a strength and a weakness. The violence of the many riots that occurred before the Black Panther Party was conceived uh, was a strength in producing an organization like the Panther Party, and also made other organizations more determined to seek a better, more revolutionary ideology to help guide the people. They could see that so many people were getting killed just because they were without organization. While I more or less explained that poem to my brothers and sisters, I recited the poem and they checked it out. Uh, then I recited, Uncle, Sam Uncle Sammy called me fellow Lucifer. Um, so I need to actually look up a couple of these poems, frankly. 
Uh, James says howdy, and that he finally made it. Nice to see you, James. Hello, James. How's it going? Um, this is a cat named Ronald Stone back in New York. I recited these poems to the brothers in a very dramatic way. Then I explained to them that this is the reason the man has really got you down and you're making $1.35 an hour. All you cats who are from 16 to 21, I said, he's paying you $1.35 an hour because he knows your soul. He knows that you have moved to resist the system. I'm showing, or I'm trying to show you that you don't have to move to resist this system in that fashion. And they dug it. On Saturdays, there was a, an education thing for an hour or two, and then there was a baseball game. The young cats would get paid for coming to the four hour session on Saturdays. After the early morning education class, some cats wouldn't go play baseball. They'd sit down and start playing blackjack or some other card game. Bobby Hutton was one of these cats. I first met little Bobby when a friend of his brought him around and asked me if I could get him a job. And I said, yeah, there's three or four more spots open down there. Uh, they ought to have enough money to give you a job. Bobby said he was 16 years old, but I knew he wasn't 16. I could tell by his face, but I said, I'll just say he's 16 and let him have his job because he needs a job. Uh, his partner had told him, we've got a foreman that's something else. And this is what I heard. And his partner said, I know he'll give you a job. He really digs all the brothers. Obviously that would be uh, referring to Bobby Seal. Emily also said hello. And she also said these jams though. I know, right? They're pretty <laughs> great. <laughs> Um, on Saturday, nobody in that whole program wanted to play baseball. So I said, well, you cats can't gamble without me. I know all of you are thinking you can out gamble me. So let's get down on it then. <laughs> they were betting nickels and dimes. Now, what are you gambling for anyway? You don't need to be gambling because the whole operation is always against you. Oh, don't you don't know what you're talking about. You're just one of those drive squares, Bobby. So you think gambling's where it's at, huh? I said, so I thought to myself, no, I don't believe these brothers are too hip. I'm gonna have to teach them just a little bit of a lesson. They were playing Jack, uh, blackjack, so I got in the game, a nickel and a dime, a nickel and a dime. And I said, let's raise the stakes. I can't win no money, man. You cats are making big money. The cats are just sitting there, a quarter, man, a quarter. I said, what kind of gamblers are you? Are you all tight, chintzy, jive gamblers? So the cat that who had the deal said, bet a quarter if you want to bet a quarter. I said, bet a half. He said, bet a half. I said, right on time. I hit down and uh, bet a half and I lost about 15 halves. Finally, I got to deal. I had lost almost all of the $10 I had with me. So I said, all right, who's gonna go against me with this piece of money? I had 75 cents on me. I said, here's 75 cents right here. One of the brothers said, I'll go. I said, all right, let's deal one hand. Boom, we dealt one hand and I won. I said, who's gonna go against me with this $1.50 I got here? Everybody's saying this motherfucker. They were thinking that I had to lose. I could have lost, but I had a little piece of luck. I won and I built the pile up to about five bucks. I said, all right, now the sky is the limit. Anybody can bet anything they want to, anything. I can't run out of money. He said, I want to play payday stakes. And he said, payday stakes, I'll take anything. I'm taking all bets coming in this way right here. Coming around the board, baby, can you hear me? I ran it down and flipped all the cards out and that's when I really started winning, but I lost the damn deal. So I lost a deal and the game is spirited with payday stakes. So I said, the sky's the limit. One cat was gonna be slick. What do you bet? He asked me, I'll bet a hundred dollars. The other cat said, right on time. That makes uh, that, that old Bobby makes that six, that old, that old Bobby makes that old 650 a month. I'm gonna get me some money. A hundred dollars. I said, boom, I won. This cat didn't want any more part of it. 
So I went down to another cat and got him and I went and played a few more hands. I was running the game and things were getting tight with the little change they had left on him. I finally got caught by another cat. I said $100, I lost. Bet another 100, I said, I lost. Payday stakes, <laughs> bet another $100, I lost. I lost five more hands. I was about $700 in debt. This cat had a shit-eating grin all over his face, man. He didn't know what to do, so he just giggled and all the other dudes they wanted to deal because they figured I was cool. We went on again. Payday stakes, $100, lost again. Payday stakes, $100, lost again. Then I got a blackjack and won back the deal. Payday stakes, I said, oh man, oh man, nothing. I play payday stakes with you, now you can play payday stakes back with me. I make the most money anyway in this motherfucking thing, so what are you gonna do? Sit up here and jive like a bunch of little jive chicken shits, squirming? <laughs> or are you gonna gamble like men? <clears throat> you say you can gamble. I was really going to teach him a lesson then because I was always gonna outbet them. We went way out to the benches in the middle of the park and we sat down and really started gambling. We had about 15 cats there. All the cats who thought they were slick wanted to gamble. I kept the deal and after a while, I must have had two of them, $2,000 in debt. So I told the cats, now you're gamblers, aren't you? They said, yeah. Now you see what I've been doing to you cats? I've been out betting you. I had one cat there, $1,000 in the hole. What you need to do is bet $2,000 next time. Bet $2,000, man. Come on, all you cats that are in the hole, come on now. Some of you have got to win. Now I've got you $600 in the hole. You 500, you 300. I had all these cats in the hole and I told them they had to righteously bet. So the cats up their bets and I won every hand, man. I won every hand. They didn't want to play anymore. I said, come on, man, what's the money? I don't make as much money as you. I can't pay that kind of money. <laughs> You're going to pay me. Don't be dri jiving me. You're going to pay me because I get your checks. I'm the one who gives you your checks. You understand that, right? I'm the one who puts your hours on the books. I was serious with them, too. I sounded very serious. Then I said, all right, all right. I might cut it down on some of you because I know you can't afford to pay. But you cats are going to pay me. You're going to pay me every bit of it. I don't want to have no shit out of none of you. So, of course, they're pissed. Payday kid was coming up that Monday. They got paid twice a month on the first, uh, on the 15th and the last of the month. I was going to say the first and the 15th, but that's uh, not right. Um, so when payday came, I got them all together. I had their names written down in a book. I had their checks put aside, especially. Come on, brothers. Let's, let's get in the truck. Get in the truck. I took them down to the bank and handed their checks out. I said, all right, now you owe me uh, $2,000, right? The cat says, yeah. And he says, all right. I want half your check and that'll be the end of the debt. Keep in mind that your check was $100, wasn't it? Yeah, something like that. So, you know, like $2,000 debt, he's like 50 bucks, call it good. Um, so what I did was prorate everybody who owed me less than that. Some cats only wound up paying me a couple dollars. But the thing is, after, I, uh, after that, I told them, don't be gambling anymore. The house will beat you. I've been to Reno. I know, man. The house will beat you. That's going to teach you a lesson. I took that money and donated it back and turned it towards a big party they had. Then with some of the cats who were 21 years old, I bought them all the beer they wanted for the rest of the summer. Another time, I caught some of, the, some of them drinking wine on the job. I saw two of them sitting in a car and sipping from the bottle. I called to the brother who was supervising the job. I said, hey, man, you see those dudes right here? They were sitting out there hiding the wine bottle. You see these dudes, man? 
The cat who's supposed to be supervising looks at me. Man, these punks are sitting up there driving and fucking off, man. They're not doing any work and it's your fault. But the most killing thing about it is they have some wine in the car, man. The supervisor thought I was getting halfway serious, but he knew me a little bit, so he started laughing. I said to the dudes in the car, okay now, open the door, get out of the car. I told the supervisor, the 21-year-old cat, I said, these cats have this wine and wouldn't give us any. They wouldn't give us a bit, man. So now that they've drunk half the wine out of the bottle, the rest belongs to me and you, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, that's funny. Is that all right with you, brother? I asked one of the dudes who had been drinking, and he agreed. So we checked back around and uh, we drank the wine. Then we said, everything's all right. You, <laughs> you all go back on to work, all right? They said, all right, man. This was toward the beginning of the job. They thought that I was gonna turn them in. What I was trying to do was show the brothers they have to take more responsibility, but I was trying to do it with a different technique instead of pouncing on their heads or, you know, firing them or docking their pay or the more traditional methods that would have been done. <clears throat> I knew that those kids had been drinking wine before they ever met me. Uh, when you roll, when you roll it in on them fast like the authorities do, and beat their heads and put them down, they only want to do it more. So the thing was to catch them with the wine and let them know that they weren't being slick and that they weren't hiding it from anybody, and have them go back to work. Now, if I had thrown the wine away and spilled it all on the ground, the cats would have hated me. I'd have despised the cat who threw away all the wine. Right. <laughs> oh. No alcohol abuse. <laughs> this is the kind of general relationship I built up with the brothers. Some of the brothers who got caught doing different things got docked on their pay occasionally. Sometimes I'd leave the pay dock, but a lot of times I'd take the dock pay off if I saw the cat was really trying to go ahead and do his work. One of the more significant things I tried to do was to get the dudes to do the jobs real quick and do them efficiently. That would leave some time over to sit down and talk about the history of black people and the experience of black people, how the system was against us and how we had to grow up and be more functional. Bobby Hutton originally said that he didn't want to go back to school, but through the summer program, I talked him into going back. Of course, when he did go back to school, he got kicked out again. I was still working on another job down at the same poverty center and he came up and told me. I talked him into going back a second time, but a week or so later, he got kicked out again. He asked me to get him a job in the Poverty Center, so I said, yeah, that'd be better than running the streets because that's what's going to happen to you, man. The pigs busted him one day, and he told them that he was trying to get a job down at the corner, and the pigs dropped him off in front of the poverty office. I happened to be out there. I told him, yeah, I'm trying to get him a job here. I think they busted him with a beer can or something, so I got the head supervisor in place to get him a job. Some other brothers in that program were among the initial members of the party. But Bobby Hutton is the very first member of the Black Panther Party. What was significant to me about that summer program was that I had built up such a good relationship with the young brothers. One of the one of the things that hurt the that poverty operation was that they were always trying to get the kids to do things by following that authoritarian shit. They're always citing the marquee of Queensbury's rules and stuff like that. And half of those brothers couldn't even read. Some of them were already out of high school, some of them were dropouts, and some had already graduated. The 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds, but many of them couldn't even read. Trying to teach those cats was tough. Most of the sisters could read. The brothers could read words like this, that, did, done, days, etc., but their general reading level wasn't any higher. Most of the brothers were from the streets. They wanted to be slick, they wanted to be pimps, they were trying to get them a piece of, trying to get them a piece from some, some of the sisters all the time. 
It was hard, but I was able to encourage them to go and sit in the writing and reading classes that went along with the program. The work crews had to come in for a certain number of hours. They'd go to a class for an hour or two and go back out. I tried to give them uh, some insight into the values of reading and the values of learning, along with black history. I try to help the cats understand that it was all related. And uh, the next section is going to be police community relations. Does anybody have anything to say about the uh, the poverty program chapter? I love his approach. Yeah. Oh, dude, for real though. Yeah. I don't know if we still have those, but if we do, they need to be ran like that. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like for him to straight up rob all those dudes and be like, all right, you owe me $2,000, we'll call it good at 50 bucks. That's fucking awesome. <laughs> and then for him to take that money and like donate it towards a party for them at the end of the summer, that's also pretty dope. Yeah, for real. I dig it. He wasn't about trying to actually like fucking punish people in a fucked up manner for drinking on the job or shit like that. It's like, no, no, motherfucker. You still got your job. Go do it. I'm going to drink the rest of your wine while you do. Go fucking do it. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> All right. It's a fucking yeah, no, great I'm... way to deal with an issue at work. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I'm I'm very uh, stoked that that was his approach. I see we've got some comments. I'm going to catch up on those before we get too far. Okay. Jason said I was pooping, but now I'm here. Oh James my God. said, can't poop while the show <laughs> <Thanks>. is on. <laughs> and Jason said, I poop according to my need and ability, comrade. Right there with you, bro. <laughs> and, Nat and Natalie said, you seem to be a totally honest comrade. Definitely no made-up excuses as to why you're late for sure. And, right. and then Jason said, I only lie to fascists. Fuck yeah, dude. <laughs> Hell yeah. I I'm glad you're here. I needed that little bit of entertainment. Ah, <laughs> my name still says Antifa Slut Command. It does. Yeah. Even without me being in the room with you. It's still Antifa Slut Command. Well, this is the command center. This is where we run all the operations out of. I The reason you don't see the other half of the room is because it's classified. Right. <laughs> so wait, 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 wait. Time out. Have you guys been getting your Soros checks lately? Um, That's also classified, but don't look behind the curtain. <laughs> oh, my God. Anyway, sorry, guys. Back forget, to the book. Did he forget to pay you again? Yeah, dude. Every time. I'll, I'll shoot him a text. <laughs> Police community relations. Let's do this, Rob. If, uh, if at any point either one of you want to take over the reading for a minute, I'm totally cool with that, by the way. But. Okay. Uh, um, just one thing, though. Will you turn the music down just a little bit? Because it's, it's drowning you out a bit. I mean, I can turn myself up more, but the music is as low as it goes. How do I that sound works now? Too. That's better balance. Okay. okay. Like, I still want to hear the jams. They're great. But... Yeah. Well, I mean, I was, I was using my mic yesterday for, like, you know, recording. So I had the levels. I should have done a sound check before we went live. Gotcha. 
So okay. thank you, uh, thank you everyone for for dealing with. Uh, thank our, you. Uh, Technical difficulties. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! Smoke them if you got them. Natalie said, "Still waiting on mine." <laughs> oh, Natalie. Listen, what you got to do is uh, I'll I'll write everybody a letter to HR. Um, call yeah, man, Sor- Soros has got to come out that name, bro. Right? I don't Been even know a long Soros time. first name, man. George, George Soros. Why is always, like, one-syllable names? Because uh, they're white. Ah. I'm sorry. Anyway, police community relations. Sorry. Our best experience in dealing with the power structure in that program came when uh, somebody in the Department of Human Resources downtown set up a tour of police headquarters for our center. Wow. Mr. Allen, the head of the program, said, Mr. Seal, the young ladies and fellows on the whole crew here will be going down to police headquarters tomorrow. That was Friday. I said, police headquarters. He said, yeah, they have a tour down there and they want uh, they want them to come down and tour the police station so they can understand the city government better and so the police department can establish better human relations with the community. Well, I said, okay, I'll see to it that they all get down there tomorrow. I thought to myself, if those brothers and sisters get down there and get to talking with too many of those policemen, these cats are going to get themselves busted. I knew they were always in and out of job petty crimes. A lot of times I put them on jobs somewhere in town, a crew of 10 or 12, and they might try to shoplift from a corner store or something like that. One time I had to go in and talk the man into not having them arrested because they had been in there stealing, stealing the man's stuff. And when they had uh, when they had money in their pockets, I had to show them that it wasn't necessary to be ripping things off when they had money in their pockets. Petty crimes can jack you up, I told them. Not that I'm on the side of the system, I said, but when you've got something going for yourself, you should use that as a functional thing as much as you can. The next day, I thought I'd drop, by, uh, drop back by there because I knew these brothers. Then they'd go down there and steal even if they had 50 bucks in their pocket. So I drove by there and sure enough, there were two of them in the store. No sooner do I walk in than I saw somebody sticking a bag of cookies up under his belt. The cat came outside, I said, hey man, come here. I thought I told you, man, not to be driving around here, driving and stealing. This old man wants nothing more than to arrest you on a cat, uh, arrest you cats on a bullshit tip. Then I asked him, now how much money have you got on you? I'll buy you a beer. Tell me how much you've got on you. Oh man, what's wrong with you, man? You out of your mind? No, I'm not out of my mind, man. You ain't got sense enough to see that this old stupid man here is going to get some cop. I pulled on his coat and took the cookies back to the man. Then I said to the cat, now come over here. Walk back there and apologize to that man. Man, are you out of your mind? He turned around and walked out. I thought to myself, well, maybe I shouldn't have done that. So I went out there and I said to him, look, man, maybe I was wrong in telling you to apologize, but what I'm trying to do is keep that man from calling up. He's mad, man. He wants to call up and bust nine or 10 of you cats who are working down. I've got another job up the street from this place. Nine or 10 more cats are gonna be working in this general area. You uh, all are gonna come up to, uh, to this drive store and next thing I know, you all are gonna get busted on a bullshit tip because you don't have sense enough to see you've got money in your pocket. Cookies don't cost that much. Yeah, I guess you're right, Bobby. You're right, man, shit, I'm a fool. I said, you sure are if you keep that up. So then they said, right, and they split. So anyway, we had to go down to the police station on Friday. So I get everybody together Thursday evening. 
I went around to all the jobs and picked up half the cats. Look, tomorrow, your, you cats are going down to the police station for a tour. And the cats say, police station? They said that it sounded uh, really turned offish. Yeah, man. Bobby, what are you doing, man? I said, man, it ain't me. I don't want to go down to no jive ass police station. Some of the sisters said, shoot, I don't want to be going way down there to see old fools. But one little girl said, I want to go down there. I want to see what it's like. Half of them wanted to go and half of them didn't. The half that did want to go just wanted to go out of curiosity. Well, we're going anyway. This is one of the tours and you cats have got to go. So we're going to go. But when you get down there, don't be talking to no policemen. They're going to be trying to ask you questions. I know the cops are going to be trying to ask you questions in some kind of way about yourself, gangs, people in the community, so they can focus in on you. That's like, that's trying to use you like Germany used little kids, although it's not that heavily organized. But I know them. Don't answer any questions. Just observe things there and whatever the tour is about. I don't know what it's about, but I'll be there with you. We bust down to the police station the next day. We went inside, they took us into a big room, kind of police room, it had a lot of chairs in it. Some lieutenant who was the head of the juvenile division was sitting up there along with the chief of police. This lieutenant jumped up and said, well, it's good to have all of you here. Come down and see the police station. We've got a lot of things you're gonna see today. You'll be able to go up to the crime museum. You'll see the firing range and go see the communications operations here. His voice, his voice was real coppish like and the communication section upstairs and uh, generally look over the police department because this is all related to establishing uh, it wasn't in a human tone at all and uh, establishing community relations with the people in the communities and uh, and, uh, and 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 so that we can get better along in our society then this cop went right off into it I know a heck of a lot of you guys are out here in gangs and now he sounded real puffish like and he went on and a lot of you are in different organizations and groups and uh i want to ask a few of you some questions i noticed the other three or four cops in the room they've got pads out sitting up there they've got pads out. another uh, there was another one sitting uh, off to the side and he had a notepad sitting on his lap and i said to myself these motherfuckers i just assumed that when bobby Steele said motherfuckers it was like when samuel L. jackson says motherfucker oh yeah yeah, I, I assume. I, I hope. Probably because it's the most intimidating way anybody can say motherfucker. Yeah, I mean, I kind of feel like Samuel L. Jackson got his use of motherfucker from the Black Panther Party, but I can't, I can't. Yeah, don't quote us on that. <laughs> gonna get us in trouble, Rob. Motherfuckers. <laughs> uh, uh, Natalie said, thanks, Don. I'm, I am sure that will spread that checkup. Speed. Yeah. It was supposed to be speed. Speed that checkup. <laughs> James said, damn, stealing jive turkeys. <laughs> and then Jason said, I'm going to smoke a fat doink. Rah. That's, that's a word I haven't heard in a while. A doink. Smoking doinks. Anyway. Anyway. Uh, and uh, a lot of rioting. Things been going on, and uh, some of you guys are good guys, and uh, you know we've got some good jobs down there for you guys this summer. And uh, if you know any guys who've been running around here looting and things like that, we want you to um, 
give us their names and uh, the names of the different organizations and groups out there and uh, and uh, let us know where they're staying. And, and I jumped up and said, hold it, hold it, hold it right there. Now, one more word. Don't you brothers say a word. Don't anybody say nothing. The cop looked at me and I looked at him and I said, no, sirree. Well, he said, this is just a part of the tour. No, no, uh-uh. You ain't gonna jack these cats up here like that. You've got them informing on other people in the community and half the cats are getting shot and brutalized when you cops go pick them up. No siree, you're not gonna, you're not gonna turn us into no operation where the police department makes us inform on ourselves. If you're talking about community relations. This ain't no community relations operation. This is a jive right. criminal investigation and you're not gonna use them to do it. Well, we know how to how to start encouraging these brothers to stop committing crimes and things like that, and how to organize them to teach themselves, but we're not gonna have this. They didn't like that. So Mr. Allen came in and said, Seal, I think you should let the officer continue. And I said, yeah, okay. So he dried again. <laughs> uh, well, has anybody got anything to say out there? Nobody said a thing. Does anybody have any questions about the police department? Silence. Does anybody have any questions? Nothing. If anybody's got any questions about the police department, just raise your hand. Just raise your hand and we can talk and have some general discussion. Nobody would piss a drop. The brothers and I and the sisters, we all had that together. They weren't saying a thing. Then the police walked out and the chief of police walked over and talked to Mr. Allen. And then they walked outside. As I walked down the aisle, I spotted a brother over to my left. This cat had a big, big old long switchblade. He had the blade down on his lap, but he was cleaning his fingernails with it. This big long switchblade about four and a half inches long. God damn, I said to myself, sitting right up here in the middle of the police station. I walked over and I bent down to him and I whispered to him, brother, yeah, Bobby, he said, what is it, man? Don't raise your hands up, keep them down. I said, and close that knife and put it in your pocket. Man, do you realize you're sitting right in the police station and you've got an illegal, uh, an illegal knife on you? When you, get, when you get home, man, just leave that thing in your house. What the hell's wrong with you? And then he apologized, said, you, you man, you're right, man, you're right. And then, you know, like, he was kind of shaky. He realized that he could have got busted on that bullshit. Jason said 1312. Hmm? I heard reacted it. Jason said 1312. 12 is the police and 13 is the trash can. Mm -hmm. Just to anybody didn't i would i would say 86 12. i would also say that my favorite part of working at tim hortons was being a baker because every time i had to make a dozen i made 13. this boy don't fuck with 12. <laughs> anyway uh some of the other brothers next to him heard us talking and they started giggling haha <laughs> he he you damn fool they ridiculed each other a lot, so I said, you ain't got no business calling him no fool because you'd have probably done the same thing. Why don't you cats stop laughing at each other? Then they called me outside and the lieutenant said, well, Bobby, uh, it seems like you've got things under control here. Uh, don't you want to let us ask any questions? Mr. Allen said, Bobby, um, I mean, you have to let them ask questions. You have to tell those kids out there. I know they like you and everything, Bobby, but, or Bob, sorry, but, you have to uh, at least let them ask questions uh, and let these officers here see if they have anything to investigate. Is, is no, that... the fuck they don't. That is not part of a fucking tour, and that is a direct violation of constitutional rights. Um, fuck all of that. Fuck all of that. No. 
coming in for a tour doesn't obligate you to fucking be a rat or be investigated yourself. Right. They can suck some dick with trying to pull that shit. Nope. Jason said, cops aren't good at anything else, so they become a tool of the bourgeoisie to oppress the poor and working class. Totally agree with you there. Hence the like. Right. Uh, Where the hell was I? Oh. That's some pretty pathetic and desperate shit for them fucking cops to have tried to pull and act like they ain't fucking running some bullshit on them when they know damn well that is not how the fucking law works. And, you know, you can't just fucking act like somebody's obligated to let you question them. Fuck you. Yeah. Fifth Amendment. Suck my dick. Well, I mean, he didn't even bring up the Fifth Amendment. He went on to say, well, I'm not going to work for the investigation, Mr. Allen. Because the way police departments work, half of the stuff they get is trumped up. They're trumped up because one kid will say, Joe might have done this. Joe might have, Jim might have done that. Most kids don't know what they're saying. They don't know anything about the law. And then the police tried to say, well, we're trying to teach them about the law. No, you're not teaching them about the law, I said. And we got into a little argument right there. You're not teaching nothing about the law. Not one of them probably has ever opened a penal code book. They don't generally know what a law is or what law is being broken. Some of them are wrong. Some of them do illegal things, maybe, but I don't see any reason for you railroading. You police departments work erroneously anyway, because what you cats do is get skimpy information here and skimpy information there. And Joe said that, and Joe said this, and Jim said this, and Jack said that. And the next thing you know, half the cats you've arrested haven't even committed any crimes or any specific crime that you're trying to charge them with because what's-his-name will mention such-and-such a person's name on such-and-such a night, and that's what you're trying to get these cats in there into. And I'm not going to let them do it. We're together. We're going to stick together. Even if you fire me, Mr. Allen, I know I might because I'm protecting you. Then Mr. Allen said, well, I still think that the kids should ask some questions to go along with the community relations program. I said, all right, we'll let them ask a few questions, but I'll go with you to tell them. So what I did, instead of telling them, uh, go ahead and ask questions, I said, do you guys want to ask questions or not? One of the brothers said, oh man, I don't want to ask no questions here. So I said, well, we'll see what we can do about setting up something because I still think that you brothers have something to say about what the police do in our communities instead of always letting them dictate to us. Somebody said, that's right because a whole lot of stuff has happened, man, that I know about, that a whole lot of these police have done. All the brothers were saying, yeah, yeah, they were carrying on, man. I said, all right, hold it, hold it, hold it. I raised my hands up. They got, they always got quiet when I said, hold it. And I said, all right, I'll talk to this lieutenant some more and see what else we can set up in the future. I went over and said, Mr. Allen, why don't you just let them finish the tour? And if we just work it out together, we could have some of them or we could send some of the regular patrolmen off the streets to talk to the kids at one of the Saturday morning lecture sections, uh, sessions rather, sorry. All right, Seal, that makes sense. So they finished taking them on the tour. I was running around the tour with them, looking at different things all over the building. Along the way, uh, the way I saw one of the regular sergeants, a cop that we knew, a black cat Huey and I had known for a long time and he complimented me. Bobby, you did right because these cats really will trump up a lot of shit on a lot of brothers. Huey and I dug him because he had told us that the only time he'd shoot a cat is if his own life was actually in danger. If he saw somebody else's life actually in danger or where the cat was actually committing a criminal act. 
But like in riots and stuff like that, cats breaking windows, I'm not gonna shoot nobody over nobody's property, but I will arrest them. King Huey had definitely uh, respected that fact about him. The fact that he said if he was ordered out on a riot, he'd quit his fucking job before he'd go out there shooting and killing. This particular cop always felt that he could do a lot from the inside, but he was isolated, isolated from that whole department. He gave us a lot of statistics and a lot of information about how the entire Oakland PD was, and how 75 to 85% of them were racist. This black ca uh, cop came up to me during the tour and told me that they wanted to talk to me upstairs. And I said, oh, okay, I can talk to them. So I went upstairs and Mr. Allen was up there, the woman foreman was up there, and another member of the Department of Human Resources was up there. They didn't like me because I had stopped it. The police chief and assistant chief, uh, who was the chief when he was writing this book, <clears throat> uh, were sitting there and they filled up their heads with certain attitudes they were trying to get off. Well, Bob, uh, I think that was um, not a good thing, you know, uh, that uh, the officers weren't able to talk to the kids. Is that what white people really sound like? Uh, well, you know, Bob. Uh... <laughs> God damn it, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I, I wish that I could hear this in Bobby's voice, right? I want to know. I, yeah, for real. I want to know. <laughs> I, I, I feel that. I feel that. Anyway, well, I think that the officers should come to the community. Come down to the park where we meet on Saturdays. If you want to actually establish some community relations, come down and listen to the kids. They've got grievances, too. They want to ask the police some questions instead of the police bringing us here and asking us questions. They're always trying to ask us questions. Now we want the community and the youth to ask them questions. That's a better way to establish relations. Both of them can ask each other questions, but we want to stand on our own ground. So you send four or five regular officers off the beat, young ones and old ones, and we'll go from there. I'm pretty sure they'll go for that. The Saturday lecture class right before the baseball game. They came down the next day. The next morning they were there, man. That same lieutenant came. They had some pamphlets stacked up with three policemen standing at attention in a very dramatic photo. They took the picture from a ground angle with the modern police headquarters building and the American flag in the background. And these policemen in the pictures were smiling and on top in big letters they put police community relations. Then you flip the book over and you see all these nicey nicey things. You see pictures of a policeman helping a little white girl across the street. She's nice and neat and clean. There were no black people in the whole motherfucking pamphlet. I was checking that out, man. Goddamn, I said to myself, isn't this a front and a pony situation? The police chief is saying all kinds of nicey-nicey things and he doesn't say a word about the police brutality going on in the communities. He doesn't say a word about racists and bigots. They had pamphlets and passed them all out. Then the lieutenant said, well, uh, Bob, you uh, want to set the tone here? He was trying to be friends with me in front of the kids. Yeah, I'll set the tone. Hey, you cats, all the questions we talked about yesterday after we left the police department, I just want the true facts, things you remember or that you've heard people talk about that sound pretty true to you, not exaggerated things. You can ask these policemen about these cases of police brutality and injustice that some of you personally witnessed. You can go ahead and ask them about that. They say they want to start this community relations program, and I'm, I know you can document a, a, a heck of a lot. I hate the day that I didn't tape that session. I hate that. I, I hate the day. 
Man, those kids tore into the cops. They just tore into them. They talked about cops. They really talked about police brutality that half of them had actually witnessed. Then they talked about the stories they had heard. I was made the point of asking, is this something you witnessed or is this something you heard? Now be honest and say if you saw it or if you just heard about it. I was trying to get them to be as objective as possible, although the things they had heard were very significant too. Man, it made the cops mad and they looked mad. What about the time, one little girl asked, down on 14th Street in front of the dance hall down there on the other side of Cyprus when a black woman was snatched by three cops and knocked to the ground with a billy club. She was angry too when she said it. She made one cop just turn red. Now, do you think it's right for a big six foot cop to throw a five foot woman on the ground and hit her in the head with the billy club? One of the officers kind of nervously and trying to be serious and objective said, well, maybe she had a weapon in her hand. Yeah, she had a weapon, but they took it away from her. But after they took the weapon away from her, that's when they beat her. And that ain't right. I don't think no cop got no right to be beaten on no woman. That sister was mad. And she put that over with every piece of emotion she had. And she sat down, man. Ooh, that tore those cops up. Some of those guys were artic articulate. And some were very serious about what they had to say. Some were mad and some weren't. Some just presented cases they'd heard and argued their cases as to what was right and what was wrong. There was a few points of law that the policeman was citing wrong, and one cop actually stood up and said, no, you don't have a right to defend yourself. And I said, wait a minute, are you telling me, are you telling us, are you telling all these young people here that if a policeman unjustly, criminally attacks and brutalizes them, they don't have a right to defend themselves? And the officer said, no, you don't have a right to defend yourself. What you should do is take it and come down and file a complaint. What about the ones that are dead? They can't come down and put down a complaint. Well, uh, you know uh, that uh, those uh, cases are exaggerated. Exaggerated my ass. 50% of them. 50% of them, man, are outright cases of police brutality and police murder. Maybe the other 50% of them are related to some kind of criminal activity because we know that the brothers do commit crimes. We're not trying to hide that fact, but 50% of those cases are outright police brutality. Man, that upset the whole place. Then this little girl got up and said, say you, she was about 16, and she pointed at this one policeman. You don't have to treat him like that, I said. Bobby, I'll treat him like I want to because they done treated me so bad. Well, excuse me, sister, I said, and I sat back. This cop she pointed to, he was red, he was shaking. She said, have you ever been to see a psychiatrist? That's what she said to this cop. This cop just looked at her and the lieutenant got ready to say something, but she started speaking again. I heard the policemen are supposed to go see a psychiatrist if they are psychologically capable uh, of being a policeman. Have you ever been to a psychiatrist? The way you're shaking now, the way you're shaking now and carrying on, you must be guilty of a whole lot. And I haven't got no weapon or nothing. This is just ordinary meeting, an ordinary meeting between police and people in the community. The youth here on this program and you're shaking. Not only do you need to see a psychiatrist, you need to be off the police force. Man, that cat was mad. That was a hell of a scene. I have never witnessed anything so beautiful. Those kids knew cases. They know, man, they know. And that was so beautiful. And that was when I knew that I became an enemy of the Oakland Police Department. This was about three or four months before the Black Panther Party got started. Uh, most of the brothers really dug the poverty program and the way I ran it. I'm pretty sure most of this, these kids learned a lot. I even found brothers who knew drafting. 
Since I dug drafting myself, I began to advocate to the advisory committee that the brothers should learn more skills on these programs and that we should set up more programs in the community. So, you know, brothers who wish they had skills like brother Huey P. Newton could learn them. They should be taught by people who are really concerned with the brothers and not by those old time white racists who are trying to control them and misguide them away from unifying black people and serving black people. That was the scene and it was something else, man. And uh, that takes us to the end of the first chunk of the book. Um, I don't know if I should call that a chapter or, or what, because I feel like... Like, for example, uh, by the way, we're going to be on page 37 when we pick back up. It's going to be Huey getting the party going. And the chapter is yeah. called The Panther Program. A couple of, couple of notes at the end of the chapter. <clears throat> uh, note number one. Malcolm X's Muslim name was El Haj Malik Shabazz. Note number two, cultural nationalists and Black Panthers are in conflict in many areas. Basically, cultural nationalism sees the white man as an oppressor and makes no distinction between racist whites and non-racist whites as the Panthers do. The cultural nationalists say that a black man cannot be an enemy of black people, while Panthers believe that black capitalists are exploiters and oppressors. Although the Black Panther Party believes in black nationalism and black culture, it does not believe that either will lead to black liberation or the overthrow of the capitalist system and are therefore ineffective. Hmm. Bobby put those notes in, so I had to read them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair. Um, the the cultural nationalists, uh, if you tuned in last Thursday, we talked about them a little bit. That's kind of where uh, Bobby Seal got his, his feet wet in community organizing. And he realized that they were, I forget how he, re uh, how he worded it, but essentially they were a bunch of pussies. Um, he started talking about, you know, like defending the black community and they were, they were afraid. They, they were not about that life. Um, I just want to reiterate I know Don just read it but the cultural nationalists say that a black man cannot be an enemy of the people while the Panthers believe that the black capitalists are exploiters and oppressors just like in the push to renewable energy and so on and so forth we don't want green capitalism we don't want rainbow capitalism we don't want black capitalism we want liberation Um, anybody else have anything to to say? Yeah. Yeah, I do, actually. Hell um, yeah. Moving completely off subject real quick. Uh, it is would be was Christopher Lee's birthday today. Um, if nobody knows who that is. I, I, doubt, I doubt that you don't know who the fuck Chris, Sir Christopher Lee is. Um, but, like, he watched the last public execution by guillotine in France. Hunted Nazis actively in World War II. Um, scared everybody on the Lord of the Rings set. Played in a heavy metal band in his 80s. Beautiful man. Great, great human being. He's dead. That was a horrible way to put it, but it would have been his birthday today. Happy birthday, Christopher Lee. 
Oh, I see. Okay. I was like looking at the Facebook feed for a minute. It didn't show Trisha, and I see that her video's off. That's why. I yeah, her video it. and her um, she's muted. I don't know what's going on. Me either. Yeah, it's okay. Um, sorry, I I couldn't hear you. I popped my earbuds out for a minute. Um, just the, the migraine's not letting up, and uh, it, yeah, having the buds sitting in my ears wasn't helping with the whole headache situation. Understood. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, does anybody else want to take us into the next chapter? I would assume probably uh, not Trisha at this point. What's going on? All right, I'm I'm reading along, but yeah, right now, like my eyes are not fully focusing all the way completely. So, um, Don, if you want to take a turn reading, um. You know. Um. All right, bear with me. Uh, dyslexia prevents me from being a very good orator, um, no matter how articulate I am. Uh, next chapter is titled Huey Getting the Party Going, Black Panther Program. One day Huey said, it's about time we get an organization off the ground and do it now. I this feel like this is, I, I, I'm sorry to cut you off already, but I feel like this is going to be one of my favorite parts of the book. Huey, Huey Newton was a badass, for those who don't know. Go he ahead. Was. Go he ahead, was. Huey P. Newton. <clears throat> this was in the latter part of September 1966. From around the 1st of October to the 15th of October in the Pro Poverty Center in North Oakland, Huey and I began to write out a 10-point platform and program of the Black Panther Party. Huey himself articulated it word for word. I made, all I made were suggestions. Huey said, we need a program. We have to have a program for, for the people, a program that relates to the people, a program that the people can understand, a program that the people can read and see and which expresses their desires and needs at the same time. It's got to relate to the philosophical meaning of where in the world we are going. But the philosophical meaning will also have to relate to something specific. It was very important with Huey. So Huey divided it up into what we want and what we believe. And, oh, I misread that sentence and I apologize. So Huey divided it up into what we want and what we believe. What we want are practical, specific things that we need and that should exist. At the same time, we express philosophically, but concretely, what we believe. So we read the program one-to-one. -one, point one of what we want, and point one of what we believe. Point two of what we want, and point two of what we believe. This way, people the people should look at it. Right, ah. Again, I apologize. This is the way that the people should look at it. It puts together... Consciously, all the physical needs and philosophical principles and some basic instructive thing that they can understand instead of a bunch of esoteric bullshit. I like this. I like this already. I don't care what kind of cat is on the block. 
If he doesn't relate to anything else, he can relate to the 10-point platform and program of the Black Panther Party. He said Black people, and especially brothers on the block, have to have some political consciousness. We wrote it out, and Melvin Newton, Huey's brother, came over and proved it for corrections and grammar. We put it together. We took it. We took all the paper we needed out of the poverty program supplies late at night at the poverty office. We were writing out the 10-point platform and program inside the back of the office. Huey said, now, what's the first thing we want? And Huey answered his own question. We want freedom. And I wrote it down. We want freedom. Then he said, we want the power to determine the to determine the destiny of our black community. I said, right, brother, that's good. What's the next thing? We want full employment of our people. What else? Nothing else. Okay, brother, right. Thought about it and he was right. That's what we want. We want full employment for our people. This is a basic program for our people because the people are going to relate to the fact that this is exactly what they want and they ain't going to settle for nothing else. They ain't going to settle for a bunch of esoteric bullshit and a long essay. Then Huey said, we want white racist businessmen to end the robbery and exploitation of the black community. So I wrote that down. Then we wrote, we want decent housing, fit for shelter of human beings. What else, brother Huey? Huey sat there and he thought for a few few shakes he said now we got to get off off into the area of education i think that's important we got employment power of our own community and decent housing now i want decent education that teaches us about the true nature of this decadent american system an education that teaches us about our true history and our role in present day society after that he went right into we want all black, man, black men to be exempt from military service. That's the way we put it. We didn't have to go into anything else because we knew that the black people on the block would understand that that's what we want. Basically nothing else. Then Huey said, look at the racist power structure. We have to deal with that. We have to understand that we want, to, we want an immediate end to police brutality and murder of black people. I wrote that exactly like it was. Rob, I see you're back and I'm I'm drowning. Take over. <laughs> no, you were doing fine. I was uh, listening. Well, I was planning on following along in the comments, but the only thing that was said is Natalie said, hope you feel better soon, Trisha. That's fair. Thank um, you. Just take over for a couple yeah. paragraphs. So yeah. Oh, you're good. Can we went on to the next one? We want all black men and women <clears throat> to be released from the federal, county, state, and city jails and prisons. And I said, right, and I wrote that down. So I wanted to interject here anyway. So I'm glad that I got back in time for it. But this is kind of the birth, in my opinion, of the prison abolition movement, which is still struggling for that fight today. Um, just wanted to throw that out there. But uh, I guess now, since I already interrupted, this is really where dialectical materialism starts to to play a role. This is this is really when they start looking at their 
material conditions and really start trying to do something about it. Um, anyway, then Brother Huey said, we want every black man brought to trial to be tried in a court by a jury of his peer group as it is defined by the Constitution of this United States. For a black man, this means people from the black community. Now, I, and I said this in the pre-stream, uh, think about like the water warriors, like the, the line three protests, for example. All those, uh, those native water warriors that have been tried, imagine if they had a completely native jury, how different those, those trials would go. Anyway, uh, then Huey said, let's summarize these points. We want land, we want bread, we want housing, we want education, we want clothing, we want justice, and we want some peace. That's the way Huey put it, and I wrote it down. We went over the 10 points and put in our commas and periods, and then we got into what we believe. We went through everything we believe that was, uh, cor is it correlative? Um... <laughs> I wasn't sure if it was like cor uh, correlative or correlative. I know it's correlate, but that doesn't always mean. Anyway, Huey said, this 10 point platform and program is what we want and what we believe. These things did not just come out of the clear blue sky. This is what black people have been voicing all along for over a hundred years since the Emancipation Proclamation. And even before that, these things are directly related to the things that we had before we left Africa. When we got through all, uh, all through writing the program, Huey said, we've got to have some kind of structure. What do you want to be? He asked me, chairman or minister of defense? Doesn't make any difference to me. What do you want to be, chairman or minister of defense? I'll be the minister of defense, Huey said, and you'll be the chairman. What an election. <laughs> You're fucking right. <laughs> that's fine with me, I told him, and that's just the way shit came about. How Huey became the Minister of Defense and I became the Chairman of the Black Panther Party, just like that. With the 10-point platform and program for the, uh, and the two of us, the party was officially launched on October 15, 1966, and a poverty program office in the Black community in Oakland, California. <clears throat> we got my wife and Huey's girlfriend, Laverne, together, and they typed it out for us on stencils inside that poverty program office. The next night, we took them and we ran off over a thousand copies of that 10-point platform and program. Huey said the brothers and sisters have to relate to this because this is what they want. This is what they've told me. This is what they've told every other leader in this country. You always have to understand that Huey understood the difference between reform and revolution. Um, and, and I want to interject at the end of this paragraph, too. But I'm going to reread re that first line just to kind of drive it home. You have to understand that Huey understood the difference between reform and revolution. Huey understood that you answer the momentary desires and needs of the people, that you try to instruct them and politically educate them, that these are their basic political desires and needs, and from the people themselves will rage a revolution to make sure that they have these basic desires and needs fulfilled. So, um, on the left, there, well, between socialists, I guess, is how I'll narrow this down. There's always been kind of the fight between the more, the, the more liberal-minded social democrats and the more revolutionary-minded Marxist-Leninists. There's always been this tension between reform and revolution. 
I just wanted to interject that I think that both have their place and that any reforms that uh, that improve the material conditions of our fellow man should be supported. But we also need to understand that reforms can be overturned and that's why revolution is also important. But that's just my two cents on it. Um, back to the book. That's what Huey P. Newton put forth and that's what Huey P. Newton understood to be political. And that's what Huey P. Newton understood to be the reason why people who are oppressed will wage a revolution. That's what I remember. That's what I know. That's what I feel. And that's what I'll never forget about Huey. He never forgot about the people. He'd bring it right down to the food and the bread and employment, decent housing, decent education, the way the motherfuckers, the president and all fucked us over in the military service. The pigs, the murder, the brutality, the courts, the brothers who were in jail, how they had to be released. While he was in jail a year and a half later, Huey said to add something to point 10. He was reading brother Eldridge Cleaver's thing about a uh, black plebiscite in the United States conducted by the United Nations, which is directly related to what Malcolm X said. Huey related not to the personality alone of Malcolm or of Mao Zedong or Fanon, he related to what all of these revolutionary uh, leaders of the world said we must, what we must establish, what we must institutionalize. That's very important. This is the way the program was written. Huey always had the people's desires and political needs in mind. He always had the revolutionary tactics and the revolutionary means in mind as to how people must go about getting these things, getting these basic desires and needs. This is where the shit boils down to, to what people want and not what some intellectual personally wants or some cultural nationalists like Leroy Jones want or some jive-ass underground RAM motherfucker wants or what some jive motherfucker in some college studying bullshit says talking esoteric shit about the basic social economic structure and the adverse conditions that we're subjected to so that no, ma uh, so that no black man even understands. Huey was talking about some full employment, some decent housing, some education, about stopping those pigs from brutalizing us and murdering us. Then Huey came on the street with some guns. About a month and a half after this program was written, Huey P. Newton tried to tell the intellectuals that it's time. It's time to go forth in the revolutionary struggle, that it's not time to be bullshit. Pick up some guns and don't be bullshit. Huey wanted brothers off the block. Brothers who had been out there robbing banks, brothers who had been pimping and peddling dope, and brothers who ain't gonna take no shit, brothers who had already been fighting the pigs because he knew that once they get themselves together uh, in the area of political education, and it doesn't take much because the political education is the 10 point platform. Huey P. Newton knew that once he organized the brothers he ran with, that he fought with, that he fought against, who he fought harder then they fought him. Once you organize those brothers, you get black men, you get revolutionaries who are too much. We went uh, off into this 10 point platform and here we went forth to take a full speed of the black community using Oakland, California, where there's nearly 40% blacks and, and as a black community typical of any other in this nation. I don't give a damn if the black brothers in the South because we have, we have brothers in the South all the way up here in Oakland. And if we have brothers from New York, brothers from Chicago, what have you. Uh, Huey understood that Oakland was a typical black community. So when we took the 10 point platform and program, a thousand copies of it and went to the black community with them, he didn't just pass uh, out the platform in people's hands. He stopped, talked and discussed the points 
on the 10 point platform with all the black brothers and sisters off the block with the mothers who had been scrubbing in Miss Ann's kitchen. We talked to brothers and sisters in colleges and high schools who were on parole, on probation, who'd been in jails, who'd just gotten out of jail and brothers and sisters who looked a lot like they were on their way to jail. <coughs> they would cite uh, they would cite cases. Huey was always interested in any kind of case that, uh, anyone who looked like he was going to go to jail had inside of the courts. <coughs> Ooh. Huey was always interested in that. Huey would talk about this brother possibly being railroaded off into jail or prison. Huey knew this because he experienced it, because he understood the brother's predicament in terms of the power structure of railroading in there. Uh, Don, if you can take over for another couple paragraphs, I need to go grab a water. I oh, shit. I, uh, real quick, tell me where we were. I got distracted with figuring out if Bobby Seal is still alive. Ah. He is, by the way. He lives in Texas. We could totally try to get him on a Zoom meeting one of these days. That would be beyond amazing. It would be. Honestly. Now, where are we? Uh, we are at the last paragraph on page 40. Okay. So we had a thousand copies. Ah, son of a... One second, my computer was being shit. I understand. I can get through, I can get through another one. We'll be on page 41 when you catch up. Okay. So we had a thousand copies of the 10 point platform and program being circulated through the black community by myself and Huey P. Newton. Little Bobby Hutton came along and for one and a half months, Bobby, Bobby stuck with me and Huey helping us articulate this 10-point platform and program and the fact that we have to arm ourselves against these pigs who've been murdering us and brutalizing us. Now we are how we have to arm ourselves against these racists and Ku Klux planners infested in the police departments. Uh, the pig departments who occupy our communities, as Huey P. Newton says, like a foreign troop. We have to defend ourselves against them because they are breaking down our doors, shooting black brothers on the streets and brutalizing sisters on the head. They're wearing guns mostly to intimidate the people from forming organizations to really get our basic political desires and needs answered. The power structure uses the fascist police against people moving for freedom and liberation. It keeps our people divided, but the program will be what we unite the people around and to teach our people self-defense. When we started passing the platform around the poverty center there, they'd ask, why do, why do you want to be a vicious animal like a panther? He would break in. The nature of a panther is that he never attacks. But if anyone attacks him or backs him into a corner, the panther comes up to wipe the aggressor or that attacker out. Absolutely, resolutely, wholly, thoroughly, and completely. They didn't want to understand that. Here is the 10-point platform and program as it appears each week in our paper. October 1966, Black Panther Party platform and program. What we want slash what we believe. We want freedom. We want the power to determine the destiny of our Black community. We believe that Black people will not be free until we are able to, to determine our destiny. Number two, we want full employment for our people. We believe that the federal government is responsible and obligated to give every man employment or a guaranteed income. We believe that if the white American businessman will not give full employment, then the means of production should be taken from the businessman and placed in the community so that the people of the community 
can organize and employ all of its people and give a high standard of living. Number three, we want an end to the robbery by the white man of our black community. We believe that this racist government has robbed us. And now we are determining the overdue debt of 40 acres and two mules. 40 acres and two mules was promised 100 years ago as, a, as restitution for our slave labor and mass murder of black people. We will accept the payment and currency which will be distributed to our many communities. The Germans are now aiding the Jews in Israel for the genocide of the Jewish people. The Germans murdered 6 million Jews. The American racist has taken part in the slaughter of over 50 million black people. Therefore, we feel that it is modest man that we make. Number four, we want decent housing, fit for shelter of human beings. We believe that if the white landlords will not give decent housing to our black community, then the housing and the land should be made into cooperatives so that our community, with the government aid, can build and make decent housing for its people. <clears throat> Number five, we want education for our people that expresses the true nature of this decadent American society. We want education that teaches us our true history and our role in the present day society. We believe in an education system that will give our people a knowledge of self. If a man does not have knowledge of himself and his position in society and the world, then he has little chance to relate to anything else. Number six, we want all black men to be exempt, exempt from military service. We believe that black people should not be forced to fight in the military service for, to defend a country, I apologize. We believe that black people should not be forced to fight in a military to defend a racist government that does not protect us. We will not fight and kill other people of color in the world who, like black people, are being victimized by the white racist government of America. We will protect ourselves from the force and violence of the racist police and the racist military by whatever means necessary. Little Number shout out to Malcolm X there. By whatever means necessary. Number seven, we want an immediate end to police brutality and murder of black people. We believe we can end police brutality in our black community by organizing black self-defense groups that are dedicated to defending our black community from racist police oppression and brutality. The second amendment of the constitution of the United States gives a, gives a right to bear arms. We therefore believe that all black people should arm themselves for self-defense. So I want to interject one more time to point out this, this is today. I mean, I know that right. this book was written fucking 50 years ago, but this is today. And, um, I think that the Black Panthers showed that it was possible to police the police. And um, I think that we really need to see a resurgence of the Black Panther Party for that reason alone. As well as this 10 point list that still is yet to be met. Right, completely. But I mean, number seven is, is I mean, they're all important, don't right. get me wrong, but number seven is is really the end-all be-all of it. 
because right. if they can't defend themselves then they can't do any of the rest of it anyway sorry go ahead Don. <laughs> I can all right, it. number eight. We okay. want freedom for all black men held in federal, state, county, and city prisons and jails. We believe that all black people should be released from the many jails and prisons because they have not received a fair and impartial trial. That's true. That's true. Indeed. Number nine. Can't be fair and impartial if if your uh, jury is not actually your peers. I mean, even if it wasn't like an all-black jury, if it was a a jury that was representative of the specific neighborhood you live in, but you right. know, then there then there's also like the question of if you know the person. So I guess maybe that's an issue. But it should be a community-based thing. They should be tried by the people that are actually affected by their actions. Right. A jury of your peers means your peers, not people who live in a different fucking part of town altogether um not nobody who can i even identify with you know your life your struggles etc no that's that is definitely not a fair trial i agree um gene said in the comments that they downloaded the book very thanks you're very welcome Oh yeah. Where was I? The reason that we have this Number available nine. for download, by the way, is because I, I want to reread the oh, please. copyright disclaimer at the beginning of the book. The reason that we made this available for download and we don't give a shit what any publisher may think about it is because in Bobby Seal's own word from the table of contents page, fuck copyright. Feel free to mirror this book, print it out, quote parts of it, or better yet, act upon it. Fuck copyright. Number nine. Uh, what page is that? I scrolled back up to read that. Oh, motherfuck. <laughs> I don't know. 42? 42, heard. Okay. Number nine. We want all black people, when brought to trial, to be tried in a court by a jury of their peer group or people from their black communities as defined by the Constitution of the United States. We believe that the court sh should follow the United States Constitution so that black people will receive fair trials. The 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution gives a man, in this case, man meaning mankind, the right to be tried by his peer group. A peer is a person of a similar economic, social, religious, geographical, environmental, historical, and racial background. To do this, the court will be forced to select a jury from the black community from which the black defendant came. We have, we have been and are being tried by all white juries that have no understanding of the average reasoning man of the black community. <clears throat> and finally, Number 10, we want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. And as our major political objective, a United Nations supervised 
Is it plebiscite? That's how I said it earlier. I don't know. Nobody corrected me. <laughs> plebiscite to be held throughout the black colony in which only black colonial subjects will be allowed to participate for the purpose of determining the will of the black people as to their national destiny. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal, equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impelled them to, to the separation. We hold these truths. So hold on. I, I wanted to say, I forget what it was, but um, the I forget what that first paragraph is a quote from, but this next one is from the Declaration of Independence. Um, they're both a quote from the Declaration. Are they? Yeah, yeah. This is the first and second right. paragraph of the Declaration. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and, in, and to institute a new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and trans, transient, transient causes. Yep. Transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evil, evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuse and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism it is their right it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security so first of all i just want to say that like it that really shows that yeah, I know, but I mean, I like just in in that it really shows how much more of a revolutionary document the Declaration was than the Constitution, frankly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and on that note, I want to point out that only seven of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were involved in, in any way with the Continental Congress. So, I would say that the Constitution was the reactionary like answer to the well yeah because the articles of confederation gave too much power to uh well a lot of things that didn't sit right with 
the upper, the white upper class of the colonies at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And then we got stuck with the Constitution, which is still a decent framework for freedoms if we actually follow the fucking thing. But anyway. Yeah, that's going to get us off track, Rob. Yeah, that's why I said, but anyway. <laughs> and I'd like to take a moment to redirect back to how this affects people, still is affecting people. Because four years ago, LaBelle Lee was um, put to death by lethal injection. This was in 2017. Because he had been falsely accused of murdering a white woman in 1993. So um, he was found guilty even though there was no DNA. The DNA and fingerprint testing on the murder weapons didn't even get tested until afterwards when the fucking city of Jacksonville, Arkansas, got fucking sued for it. Um they they literally had him seated with an all white jury so not his peers who found him guilty for no fucking reason he had a drunk piece of shit of a lawyer who didn't bother to fucking defend him um the son of a bitch was showing up drunk to court every fucking day basically did not give a shit and it wasn't until after they had put him to death and sued the fucking city for the shit of like, no, you're going to actually run this fucking DNA and fingerprint evidence that they discovered, oh, fuck, we put an innocent man to death. This shit is still happening. Still fucking happening. Literally. All white jury putting an innocent black man to death when we have the ability to quickly easily test the fucking dna and fingerprints fingerprints are you fucking kidding me you know how easy that is to pop it into the fucking computer and run it the evidence didn't clear until after it was too late Hey, so I know this is a little bit back off topic, but it's also on topic. I uh, I went to Bobby Seal's website. He has contact yeah. information on there. Hell yeah. This awesome. is completely off topic, but I just saw it. Um, the author of one of my favorite books from childhood passed away today. The guy that wrote The Very Hungry Caterpillar. Oh, wow. Passed away at 97 years old. I also found out from bobbyseal.com that, uh, well, I can't pronounce his African name, but uh, his government name was Charles L. Brunson. He was the founder of the Sacramento, California chapter of the original Black Panther Party. Passed away from the complications of COVID-19 on Monday, April 13th at the University of California Medical Center. He was 76 years old. Oh, damn. Rest in power. Rest in power. Just to like put the time frame in perspective, my dad was born in the year that the Black Panther Party was founded. 
right? So that wasn't that long ago. I, I mean, we always try to make it sound like it was a long time ago because, well, everything's a long time ago. Last week was a long time ago, you know, in, in the kind of world that we live in. But like it, it, in the grand scheme of things on a generational scale, that that's not even a lifetime ago and nothing has changed. Well, part of it is because they do things like intentionally print these pictures in the history books in black and white to make them seem like they happened a long time ago when we've had colored pictures for quite some time. Right. Think about it. You ever seen a colorized picture of a civil rights protest? I don't think so. Not in a history book. I mean, a, yeah, no, you're not going to. I did use the Googler, James. You're you're totally right. James, um, you missed your favorite part, bud. Natalie said, it's sick to think how many people have died due to a corrupt system that thrives on the poor and working class. An extremely racist system. Indeed. Exactly. Exactly. Oh. I'm sorry, though. We can go back to the book now. It's your turn. That's fine. I read the whole decla Declaration of Independence. The whole... <laughs> the whole thing? No. But a lot. Hey, Sorry, Rob, guys. get I ready to use the term expletive deleted. Yeah. I <laughs> have to, hold better. on. I have to refresh this because it said there was a problem loading the page. Oh. There we go. Radio edit. Yeah. So uh, last time I was, uh, that we were reading this, they were using the N word a lot. And very clearly, I'm a white man. I'm not going to use that not word. Last that time word. I was replacing right. it with um, literally N word, but I'm going to replace it with radio edit. Why we are not like racist. The Black Panther Party is not a black racist organization, not a racist organization at all. We understand where racism comes from. Our Minister of Defense, Huey P. Newton, has taught us to understand that we have to oppose all kinds of racism. The party understands the embedded racism in a large part of white America, and it understands that the very small cults that sprout up, sprout up every now and then in the black community have a basically black racist philosophy. The Black Panther Party would not stoop to the low scurvy level of a, of a Ku Klux Klansman, a white supremacist, or the so-called patriotic white citizens organizations, which hate black people because of the color of their skin. Even though some white citizens organizations will stand up and say, oh, we don't hate black people. It's just that we're not gonna let black people do this and we're not gonna let black people do that. This is scurvy demagoguery. And the basis of it is the old racism of tabooing everything and especially of tabooing the body. The black man's mind was stripped by the social environment, by the decadent social environment he was subjected to in slavery and in the years after the so-called Emancip uh, Emancipation Proclamation. Black people, brown people, Chinese people, and Vietnamese people are also called a bunch of expletives. That have been deleted. That have been deleted. What the Black Panther Party has done in essence 
is to call for an alliance and coalition with all of the people and organizations who want to move against the power structure. It is the power structure who are the pigs and hogs who have been robbing the people, the avaricious, demagogic, ruling class elite who move the pigs upon our heads and who order them to do so as a means of maintaining their same old exploitation. In the days of worldwide capitalistic imperialism, with that imperialism is also manifested right here against many different peoples. We find it necessary as human beings to oppose misconceptions of the day like integration. If people want to integrate, and I'm assuming that they will 50 or 100 years from now, that's their business. But right now we have the problem of a ruling class system that perpetuates racism and uses racism as a key to maintain its capitalistic exploitation. They use blacks, especially the blacks who come out of the colleges and the elite class system, because these blacks have a tendency to flock toward a black racism, which is parallel to the racism the KKK or white citizens groups practice. It's obvious that I'm trying to fight fire, or that it's obvious that trying to fight fire with fire means there's going to be a lot of burning. The best way to fight fire is with water because water douses the fire. The water is the solidarity of the people's right to defend themselves together in opposition to a vicious monster. Whatever is good for the man can't be good for us. And whatever is good for the capitalistic ruling class system can't be good for the masses of the people. I'm gonna interject here to say that capitali uh, capitalism has, has drastically fueled climate change. And uh, that's the perfect example of whatever is good for the capitalistic ruling class system can't be good for the masses of the people. It's not, it's killing us. Moving on. We, the Black Panther Party, see ourselves as a nation within a nation, but not for any racist reasons. We see it as a necessity for us to progress as human beings and live on the face of this earth along with other people. We do not fight racism with racism. We fight racism with solidarity. We do not fight exploitative capitalism with black capitalism. We fight capitalism with socialism. We do not fight imperialism with more imperialism. We fight uh, imperialism with proletarian, uh, proletarian, sorry, internationalism. These principles are very functional for the party. They're very practical, humanistic, and necessary. They should be understood by the masses of the people. We don't use our guns. We have never used our guns to go into the white community to shoot up white people. We only defend ourselves against anybody, be they black, blue, green, or red, who attacks us unjustly and tries to murder us and kill us for implementing our programs. All in all, I think people can see from our past practice that ours is not a racist organization, but a very progressive revolutionary party. Those who want to obscure the struggle with uh, ethnic differ differences, sorry, are the ones who are aiding and maintaining the exploitation of the masses of the people. Poor whites, poor blacks, browns, red Indians, poor Chinese and Japanese, and the workers at large. Racism and ethnic differences allow the power structure to exploit the masses of work workers in this country because that's the key by which they maintain their control. To divide the people and conquer them is the objective of power structure. It's the ruling class, the very small minority, the view avaricious demagogic hogs and rats who control and infest the government. Um, and and I, I'm gonna interject here in the middle of a paragraph to say that like, honestly, that last sentence is very reminiscent of how Marx himself wrote. Um, 
you know, referring to capitalism as a vampire and, or capitalists as vampires and so, such. Anyway, um, the ruling class and their running dogs, their lackeys, their bootlickers. Is that where the term bootlickers came from? Did they did they coin it? How old is the term bootlicker? I don't know. I don't know that's a good so, question. Man. If that's where it came from, I'm going to use it even more. Yeah, fuck yeah. <laughs> uh, they're Toms and they're black racists. They're, they're cultural nationalists. They're all the running dogs of the ruling class. These are the these are the ones who help to maintain and aid the power structure by perpetuating their racist attitudes and using racism as a means to divide the people. But it's really the small minority working class that is dominating, exploiting, and oppressing the working and laboring people. All of us are laboring class people, employed or unemployed, and our unity has got to be based on the practical necessities of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, if that means anything to anybody. <clears throat> It's gotta be based on the practical things like the survival of people and people's right to self-determination to iron out the problems that exist. So in essence, it is not at all a race struggle. We're rapidly educating people to this. In our view, it is a class struggle between the massive proletarian working class and the small minority working class, or ruling class, sorry. Working class people of all colors must unite against the exploitative, oppressing, or oppressive ruling class. So let me emphasize again, we believe our fight is a class struggle and not a race struggle. And then we get into the weapons. Huey P. Newton carried the M1. Hmm. That's a good gun. It's yeah, a really solid platform. Honestly. And I, I mean, honestly, what else would the minister of this, uh, uh, the minister of defense be carrying? I'm just An AK. Well. Although, arguably, I would say that the only upside to an AK compared to an M1 Grand is the AK has the capability of going fully automatic if you shave down a certain pen. A certain part? <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, we have more comments. James said, rich white guys are training everyone. Not going to change with the same people in charge. Agreed. Um... I mean, and I think that's something that we need to fight against. The same people being in charge of me. Um, and Natalie pointed out that they can now add color to pictures of any era. And that is... Yes, actually, I, I love looking at... at, at I do, too. I've gotten to pictures. see some, some pretty awesome pictures related to what Grandpa did in the South Pacific. Like, just colorized pictures of the ship and shit like that amazing right yeah yeah i mean i believe that so we're going into the next chapter if anybody has joined and doesn't know where we're at in the book which is pinned in the comments uh we are at the top of page 45 going into the chapter our first weapons and then we'll probably uh bring it down for the night um at the end of this chapter because we're already going on two hours which is kind of funny i didn't think it was that long at all we could probably stop at our oh, first wow. weapons and because well, like that's wait, fair. Like... let's do this <laughs> fuck it i was gonna fuck say it. we, we, already, we already introduced it uh yes <laughs> natalie page 45 late oh. in november 1966 uh, we went to a third world brother we knew, a Japanese radical cat. 
He had guns for a motherfucker. Three fifty-seven magnums, twenty-twos, nines, what have you. We told him we wanted these guns to begin to institutionalize and let black people know that we have to defend ourselves as Malcolm X says we must. Said we must, sorry. We didn't have any money to buy guns. We told him that if he was a real revolutionary, he'd better go on and give them up to us because we needed him now to begin educating the people to wage a revolutionary struggle. So he gave us an M1 and a 9mm. There was a law service section up in the poverty program office and Huey studied those law books. Backwards, forwards, sideways, and catty corners. Everything on gun laws. And I was right there with him trying to study them too, run them down and understand them. Huey knew that he could carry a rifle or a shotgun. His probation officer had to run this down to him. He could carry a rifle or a shotgun, but he couldn't carry a pistol. So I carried the pistol and Huey P. Newton carried the M1. The advisory councils of each of these four poverty program target areas, which consisted of over 30 members from each area, a cross-section of the community, had voted unanimously that there should be a citizen's review board of the police because of the police brutality and the murder that had gone down recently in the past. We got these two guns together and we started, uh, we decided to carry them to a party we were going to. Huey said, we're going to carry our guns and we're going to patrol these pigs on the way to the party. We didn't see any pigs on the way to the party. When we got to the party, virtual let us in. We went into the party with our guns. We got inside and here come the bootlickers. Um, scared radio edit. Radio edit who were driving. Radio edit who were talking shit. <laughs> but Huey is such a humanistic brother that he wants to educate people and I don't blame him. They have to understand. What are you doing with the guns? A few people asked. We have the guns, Huey P. Newton said, because we're instituting a new organization, uh, a revolutionary organization that has a 10-point platform and program that emphasizes the basic political desires and needs of black people throughout racist decadent America. So like, time out. They just showed up to a party with guns and started laying down some political education. Yeah, bro. The I mean, shit, how fucking, many, the how many fucking times, balls on these guys. How many dude? times have you seen hunting hunting rifles out at a woods party? Come on. I mean, that's different, though. How? We're talk- <laughs> we're, we're, okay, it shouldn't be different. That's a, that's a very good point. But, I mean, we're talking about, like, just like a party in the hood, right? Where, I mean, obviously guns were not, like, generally welcome there. They didn't give a fuck. They just showed up and they're like, hey. This is why we have guns. Anyway, back to the story. A few people got upset about the guns. At this party, they were predominantly Negroes and a few black-minded people. And they said, check your guns. They had been brainwashed to the position that a black man couldn't have a gun, but a cop could. That's what's wrong with them. And that's exactly uh, what's wrong with them. Huey P. Newton, Minister of Defense of the Black Panther Party said, all right, we'll check our guns. So we checked our guns. We put them in the closets and proceeded to party. Before, But before Huey checked his guns, he told them, these guns are not here to brutalize black people or to intimidate black people. They're just to let you know that there's a new organization established called the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. Its 10-point platform and program outlines the basic desires and needs of black people. And this revolutionary organization intends to see that black people receive those basic political desires and needs. 
They couldn't understand it. They were so damn brainwashed, but we checked our guns and proceeded to party. It wasn't 15 minutes before some bootlicker inside of that party, some Uncle Tomming radio edit, <laughs> decided to call the police. We didn't know it was happening, but they called the police. They were there about 10 or 15 minutes outside, about 10 or 15 outside the house. Three or four of them came up inside. One of the Negroes, and he put it in quotes, that's why I did, <clears throat> uh, pointed me out, and one of them pointed Huey out. I don't remember what they said to Huey, but I do remember the pig that came up to me and said, you have a gun. Yeah, I have a gun. What about it? Well, the person who owns this property and who resides in this apartment does not want you in this apartment with a gun. All right, I'll leave. I'll go get my gun and I'll leave. But I, and I found out later that Huey said the same thing. But as Huey was leaving, Huey called the bootlicking radio edit and his sister, a bootlicking sister, both bootlicking bastards. And he told them they were wrong, that they'd called a racist pig upon us who were trying to establish an organization, a political party to defend black people against the decadence and the racism in this system, against brutality and murder and all other political, uh, economic and social injustices. So we walked out and walked down the stairs. There were pigs on the stairs, pigs on the balcony, pigs downstairs, and there were pigs on the street. With our guns loaded to the gill, we walked to our car on the corner, me with my wife and Huey with this girl, Laverne. The pigs were trying to harass Huey and me verbally, but Huey harassed them verbally. He cited laws and cited points of rights and put those rights in context about black people's right to defend themselves and bear guns and be armed by the Second Amendment of the Constitution. If you don't like it, he said to the pigs, later for you. And all I could do was dig on Huey's technique and listen to him and reiterate <laughs> what he said and back him up with a nine millimeter eye. Huey put his M1 in the middle of the car between the two seats in the Volkswagen, and I had my nine millimeter. After the pigs tried to shout at him through the car window, I told him to just cool it. He always had a, I always had a habit of telling Huey to split and it's the truth. Man, that shit got so hot and Huey was the kind of cat who'd be ready to vamp on the motherfucker. And I'd be telling Huey, wait a minute, man. We got a lot more work to do. We got a lot more of this to do. Come on, let's go. Huey would ask me, you think we ought to, man? These pigs are trying to harass us. Let's split. <laughs> I mean, you gotta, you gotta be, you gotta know when to retreat. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with tactically retreating. <laughs> right. And, and I mean, honestly, I'm glad that that Bobby Seal was there to talk Huey out of doing something stupid when he was alone. I mean, he, he wouldn't, uh, I mean, he's already, you know, like not mentioned in history books, but we wouldn't even know who he was. This is true. Um, I mean, fuck, I had to Google him before this. Fair. Fair. Huey P. Newton is dead, but, uh, Bobby Seal is is still alive. He's okay. 84 years old. Two weeks ago, he spoke at a uh, um, Democratic thing. Really? Yeah, a thing held by the Democratic Party, yeah. He also, uh, two weeks ago, was talking about uh, how hmm. the liberation of Palestine ties into the movement of the Black Panther, or the uh, purposes of the of the Black Panther Party. 
even though the Black Panther Party was technically dissolved in 2006 or 2002. Yeah, that's why there's uh, uh, the original Black Panther Party and the new Black Panther Party. But I believe that they're both re- revolutionary organizations working towards the same end. So I don't really get why they don't merge. But well, the younger generation is the Cubs, and it's run by Frank Hampton Jr. No shit. Yeah. Fred. Yep. Um. There was actually some videos I had shared in the group chat a while back of interviews with him. And, man, he reminds me a lot of his dad. You'd like him. Wow. Yeah. Age 51 years. He doesn't look a whole lot like uh, like his dad for being, you know, a junior. I... I don't know why no, I expected he looks a lot like, like a, his mom. I, I agree with that. Yeah, I had to Google who she yeah. was, too. Yeah, but. she's still politically active, too. It's fucking awesome. Like, absolutely fucking inspiring. She is uh, 71 years old. Mm-hmm. Wow. Matter of fact, the two of them were in direct consulting on the um, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah movie. Nice. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, that's yeah. that's that's pretty dope. Anyway. Um, yeah. One thing about Huey, he'll listen to the dudes around him. He won't listen to pigs, and he won't listen to people acting a fool. Only those with level-headed sense. But his close brothers, his partners, he'll listen to them, because there's something he detects. If you're with him, you're with him. If you ain't, you ain't. And if what you have to say is not a bunch of bullshit, he doesn't relate to bullshit, but at the same time, he'll go right out right out front, and before you know it, boom. Don't mess over with Huey, that's the way he is. Well, yeah, I mean, the in the first episode of this, there was a, there was a story in that about how he challenged like fifteen dudes to a fight, and he's like, <laughs> and he's basically like, well, we can do this one at a time, or we can do this all at once, but I'll be outside waiting. <laughs> As I said, the fucking balls on these guys, dude. Man, I wish I had the ability to articulate like that when I actually had the balls to be like challenging 15 people to a fight. But typically I'm too drunk to even like get the words fight, the word fight out of my mouth properly. So, just saying. Indeed. Uh, I remember I calmed him down a whole lot of times, and I'd say, look, Huey, let's do this here. He talked to David Hilliard, who is now chief of staff of the party. <laughs> hey, man, what was I doing in this kind of situation? What do you think we should do? And he would have his shit and write down with it. And David would say, well, I think you ought to do so-and-so and so. He would know who is his partner and who's with him, and he'd say, okay. And he would go along with the kind of unity with those around him. That's the way Huey is. At the same time, if you get him off in a room and discuss politics, organizing people, and the political machine, the necessity of it, etc., he can relate to that too. That's what's so beautiful about Huey. He can relate to any kind of situation, whether it's death on the streets or organizing the political machine. You see, 
That's what's so beautiful about him. You can't get around him. That was the first confrontation. The pigs asked Huey if he was on probation. He said no, but he was on probation. They asked me if I was on probation, which I was, and I said no. Huey told me, don't tell them nothing, because if they find out you're on probation, they're going to shoot, uh, shoot to the probation officer and find out. I was on a judgeship probation from the court, and Huey was on a probation with an officer. Anyway, we drove away, and they followed us for three or four blocks. We went on. I, I guess we were crazy. Then. They called us crazy radio edit. But fuck it. We just went on. And that was the first implementation of armed self-defense by black people, black, black brothers, led by Huey P. Newton. I was proud to be with that brother, beginning to deal with pigs, beginning to educate people to self-defense because Huey handled it so beautifully. We were going to back off, but at the same time, Huey knew his law, he knew his points, he knew his rights, and he knew his 10-point platform and program. It was a motherfucker because Huey would start reciting the party's 10-point uh, platform and program to a pig in a minute. Before the pig knew it, Huey could be finished with the 10-point platform and program. He wouldn't recite the whole thing. But the basic things of what we want and what we believe would be in the context of everything he had to say. So we floated around the streets and we patrolled, we patrolled pigs. We followed them. We wouldn't, they wouldn't even know we'd be following. That's the way, uh, that's the way that shit went down in the very beginning. That went on for a month back there in December, 1966. Sometimes we'd just be high going to a party. We might not have guns. Other times we'd have guns. Still other times, we weren't even going to a party. We'd just be going to a meeting. We'd have our shit with us, and while we were going to the meeting, we'd patrol these pigs trying to catch them wrong. We'd see a pig, we'd get keyed off on the meeting, we'd just forget about the meeting and patrol that pig, just drive him around a long time. After that, we'd go to the meeting. That's how interrelated the shit was. We went to a lot of meetings. About this time, Huey said, let's get these brothers together and let's get us an office. And that was very important to Huey because the establishment of an office meant that something was functioning. The people in the black community could relate to it. Around the corner from my house, about a block and a half away, there was a vacant store. Huey and Bobby Hutton went down and got it for us. Bobby Hutton said, I'm a member of the Black Panther Party. And Huey says, you're the first member, a righteous member. He righteously came in uh, then as a righteous member. From there, we got our little paychecks from the poverty program. Bobby Hutton, Huey, and I, we all uh, put our money together and paid the first rent on the first office. That's fucking awesome. They were nice. Uh, we rented that first office for $150 a month on 56th and Grove in Oakland. I believe that building is still standing at 56th and Grove. I hope so, man. It's a piece of history. Google it. Oh, yeah, I'm Googling it. That's the uh, delay here. Um, why didn't I just go to Max? 56th and Grove. Oakland, California. How did it know? Because Google's always listening. Oh yeah, it's not Grove anymore, by the way. It's Martin Luther King Jr. Way. Hey! Way instead of Boulevard. Good. Right? 
<laughs> related side note to the um the street i can't remember what it was originally called but the street where the apartment was where fred hampton was murdered got renamed fred hampton avenue oh wow oh yeah yeah I discovered I that tidbit during a, an interview of, um, you know, his his widow, Fred Jr.'s mom. Um, she referred to it as Fred Hampton Way or Fred Hampton Avenue, something like that. And I was like, fuck yeah. Uh, does somebody want to read while I'm pulling up the street view i found it sorry i would help but i had to shut the lights off and not look at screens we got off in that office and painted a sign in the window black panther party for self-defense this is what it was named at the time and a lot of people came by in those first days that we opened the office we opened in january 1st 1967 We announced that we were going to have our first meeting of Black Panther Party on Saturday. One week later, we opened up the office with a new name on the window and brothers came into the office and sat down and heard what we had to say. We passed out the 10 point platform and program of Black Panther Party. We weren't even using the red book then. At the next meeting, about a week later, Reginald and Sherman Forte came in. Sherman Forte was in junior college, he said. We're going to have a political education class on Wednesday night, but before you go through political education, you have to go through use and safety of weapons for one hour. And at Saturday meetings, you have to go through use and safety of weapons for one hour. We met a uh, drunk brother named John Sloan on the streets drunk he was drunk he didn't know where to go and he lived about a block from the party office he said he was going to righteously get himself together later john sloan righteously stopped drinking he wouldn't drink a lick because Hugh told him he didn't want him coming to the office drunk don't come into the office hired drunk Hugh told him because all you can do is be destructive to the party because you don't know what you're doing in the first place We found out that John Sloan had been in the military service and that he was the best man to teach the brothers field stripping and shooting of the M1 rifle. He did that for two or three months. He was out of sight on weapons and rifle in terms of getting brothers down. He wasn't jiving. He was with us. Sorry, I had to scroll down. Then other brothers began coming in. We had a Saturday night meeting about three and a half weeks after we opened opened that office, and we had about 25 brothers there. It was me, Bobby Hutton, Huey, Mark Johnson, a brother I knew from the poverty program, John Sloan, who made we made John Sloan a captain. And then about four weeks later, Warren Tucker came in. We got another 38 rifle from a brother at Cal. He said he wasn't doing anything with it. We told him we wanted it, we needed it. We were going to defend our people. He said we weren't giving it back to him. Or we said we weren't giving it back to him. He didn't raise any arguments about it. We said we weren't bullshitting. He gave us an old broke up shotgun too. 
Next thing we knew, we had about 30, maybe 40 members of the party. I don't know how to say this guy's name. Richard? Aoki, maybe? Aoki oh, yeah. Richard. Yeah, that's, that's how you say it. Richard Aoki came in. The Japanese brother who gave Huey and me the M1 and the 9 mil. We got to talking about how he had a 357 Magnum. We got the 357 Magnum from him. And a couple more pistols. And the brothers got to getting money together and started buying weapons. Every Saturday, we opened up a community meeting in the office, and Huey was teaching dudes, brothers, and people from the community the 10-point platform and program of the Black Panther Party in that storefront office. It was a nice, clean office, too, but it didn't have any furniture in it. Sid Walton came down and gave us 20, 25 chairs, but he never panned out to be much of anything close to the party. He was too engrossed in a lot of abstract bullshit, although he did a lot of work at Merritt College in terms of furthering the things that Huey had already instituted there. But that's the way it all began, in that office on 56th and Grove in North Oakland, the first official headquarters of the Black Panther Party. Do we have a picture? A street view of the office now? Um, I, well, okay, so I was trying to find out if that was it or not, but I can't really tell you okay or not but i think i found the building but it doesn't look like anything spectacular at, at this point i mean um, i doubt it looked like anything spectacular when they were renting it <laughs> yeah that's a good point i mean the building's the same uh, i'm going back to it oh okay so basically what I'm going to do is, uh, shit, where's 56? Oh, there it is. I, I'm going to show you guys this intersection because it's kind of wonky. And I'm also willing to bet that Martin Luther King Way was not laid out like it is now. Then. I could be wrong on that, but. Uh, yeah, that's right. Oh, shit. Obviously, that's not it. <laughs> yeah, that's an apartment complex. I think that it would either be that one or uh, I thought there was a storefront in there. No, it's probably that storefront across the street then. Yeah. Oh, shit. Looking at the sky. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's it, bro. That's, of course it's an income tax place. What else? Well, no, the, pla the place next door is the income tax place. Uh, yeah, but they have an income tax sign in there. Uh, there. What's this place right here? Uh, oh, you can't see where I'm pointing. No, not that way. The other way. The other side of the uh, Wyatt and Associates. Ah. Ah. 56. Hair Design Centers. Ah. Uh, okay. Huh. Yeah, I don't know. But, uh. Back to the book. Actually, hold on. There's a comment. What do we got? What do we got? There's a couple. Yeah. <laughs> Jason said, uh, you commies are still going at it. <laughs> yeah, bro. 
And then he said, armed trans comrades. Armed trans comrades. Uh, should be drinking Russian standard vodka by now and discussing disruption of services. <laughs> no, I only drink absolute. Uh, and the Natalie said, yup, to the end. Is that your Googler Earth? Actually, that was Googler Maps, James. Ooh. Yeah. Aren't you fancy with no. you with your Googles? Um, but uh, just so everybody knows where we're starting um, next week, it'll be on page 49. The chapter is going to be Red Books for Guns. You know, the red book. For guns. Yeah, but, but you know, the red book. The little red book that we've been reading. I know. Yes. I know, guys. <laughs> Which um, that is also going to be separate from the current events uh, event stream now. Um, I'm not sure if it's going to be in our first like five books doing this as its own segment. Um, but regardless, it's going to be in a format like this where it's its own show instead of you know, adding 45 minutes to the, to the three hour current event stream to do it there. Uh, does anybody have anything to say or, um, I mean, I know the original purpose was to discuss dialectical materialism. And again, we got really caught up in the story, but That's they a good are, story, dude. Oh dude. Yeah. Honestly, it's, this book is amazing. <laughs> and a big part of that is how, you know, they didn't just put together that that list of 10 things that relate directly to the material conditions of life as a black person in America. Um, they're going out teaching other people. They're, you know, actually taking action based on that of like, no, these are our fucking demands. So it's, you know, it's important to dive into the whole story there and not, you know, skip anything. Those were incremental steps to actually building the party and making a positive impact. Indeed. So, um, the story about the Red Book is, is, is hilarious. I'm, I'm going to give you a little bit of a preview. But essentially, they decided to buy a bunch of copies of the Little Red Book. And then they sold it, or sold them, rather, for uh, gun money. <laughs> yeah! Fuck yes. <laughs> Fuck yes. But, uh... Fundraising. That, uh, yeah, dude, that's, that's spot on fundraising um but does anybody else have approve. anything to add about uh what we read today or any like reflection or or i mean if you want to tie it to today that's cool too well my brain's on fried but one thing that did pop into mind is i think it would be really really fucking dope for somebody to do a tv series on the life of Bobby Seale. I mean, that'd be and really, yeah, to like delve into the details and, and actually, you know, 
Well, you know, I've, I've been saying for a while now that if like the left wants to have their own media, which is what we're trying to do, and we're definitely not alone in trying to do it. But if that's what we want to do, we're going to have to have shows and movies that aren't produced by Hollywood to, to properly tell these stories. Um, right. So, you know, if anybody uh, is well-informed on the Black Panther Party and is interested in making a show, I don't know how I could help you other than, you know, like, obviously we could like put it on our channels but i want to be a part of that <laughs> right that would be fucking dope jason said it starts with the working class right now they are corrupted by a far-right extremism it's real right he also said i love guns that destroy fascists <laughs> <laughs> fuck yeah hell yeah Well, does uh, anybody have anything to add, or should we just like awkwardly end now? <laughs> We're great at awkwardly ending things. <laughs> oh man, I'm wondering what Tom's reading now. I'm not. We're not going into that. Okay. The latest news coming out of America is not good. Oh, there's news? Do I even want to know? Uh, husband and wife military doctors gunned down in their front yard four hours ago. Um, QAnon is now more popular in the United States than the three major religions in the world. Paul Ryan, um, man who constantly looks perplexed, like uh, his wife just said no to making him a sandwich, says is criticizing the GOP for once. Good for you, bud. Uh, let's see. Flor the most Florida man thing on the planet. Two dead, ten possibly missing after a boat overturns in Florida. I can only assume they were going after crocodiles or meth. Look at Paul Ryan. He looks he looks like he's smelling something or he knows he knows he knows a secret about you. And he's not gonna tell, but he knows it's juicy. Look at those eyes. Man, you remember you remember when Tom Morello fucking roasted Paul Ryan? Bro, I wish Paul, I remembered that. Paul Ryan said that his favorite band was Rage Against the Machine. Ah, oh. Who do you think they were raging against? <laughs> yeah. All right. Like you are the fucking machine, asshole. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Tom Morello is not impressed. No, nobody should be. Uh, Biden released some intel about China because he's pissed off that they won't let him probe for the reason that COVID-19 exists. Uh, yeah, the news is shit. Everything's shit. America's on fire. That's fine. All right, this is all fine. Everything's fine. Oh, and there was a mass shooting in San Jose. Oh yeah, that was yesterday. I heard about that, but I haven't like heard much. Awarded best overall mattress by uh, US New. Killed nine people. Um, now's your chance. Why? Like great sleep. It literally just keeps unmuting. Like mattress, ten percent right. and more during the Memorial Day sale. Oh God. In store for a 
for Doc. <laughs> okay, I give up. But hold on, I have to like go back to this screen. I think you'll enjoy this, Don, if it plays. No, it only wanted to play the commercial. Yeah, it like very fiercely wanted to play the commercial. Like I kept muting it and it just kept unmuting. Is this really not gonna play now? Yeah, no, you kept muting their commercial. Right, you didn't listen to the commercial, how dare you? Well, I guess I just, oh, there's literally only a video. I wanted to like, you know, read the fucking tweet. Okay. E the guitarist spoke out against Paul Ryan, the recently announced Republican vice presidential candidate, in an op-ed piece in Rolling Stone after finding out the congressman is a Rage Against the Machine fan. He is the embodiment of the machine that our music has been raging against for two decades. Ryan claims that he likes Rage's sound, but not the lyrics. Well, I don't care for Paul Ryan's sound or his lyrics. Right. Right. <laughs> Morello, a recent supporter of the Occupy Wall Street movement, went on to criticize Ryan for his rage against women, immigrants, workers, gays, the poor, and the environment, and support for the super, super rich. But rage's music affects people in different ways. Perhaps Paul, Ma Paul Ryan was moshing when he should have been listening. Hmm. The Romney capitalist, or capitalist, how did I even read that? It says campaign. Romney capitalist. <laughs> <laughs> the Romney campaign took another hit from the rock world on Wednesday when Silver Sun Pickups issued a cease and desist uh, order over its use oh. of the 2009 hit Panic Switch. Yeah. Tom hey, Morello is not a fan of Paul Ryan. All right, one last piece of news. One last piece of news. For anybody that's friend or fans of uh, Dungeons and & Dragons and the show Critical Role, the season finales tonight, guys. I'm watching it right now. It looks awesome. 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 All right, so I, before we leave you, I'm going to remind you where you can find us. Uh, we're on YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We have the support group on Facebook. Um, many of you are in it. It is, uh, well, actually now it's called the Education and Discussion Group instead of Support Group. But uh, And we also have the Mutual Aid Organizing Group if you're involved with uh, mutual aid organizing in your community then post about it or if you need help um post it that's what that group is for let's help each other out later tonight you'll also be able to find one of us at least in elon musk's backyard wearing a horse costume www.patreon.com slash for we are many oh you're gonna be there too trisha Oh, I thought you were talking about me in my unicorn suit. Oh, no.
I was talking yeah, about can... me and my horse mask. Okay, let's go steam some windows. Okay. <laughs> I'll fire up the land ship. Turn it off now, Rob. We're getting into <laughs> we're getting into top secret government stuff. Dark web shit. Some deep state and shit right here. Patreon only content. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> oh my god. That would be some dope ass Patreon content. Like right? and here we are live outside Elon's bedroom window. Here's Don and his Daisy Dukes of Freedom and a horse mask. Staring at Elon Musk. Well he's and Trisha in a brightly colored unicorn suit. We just stare at him very motherfuckily. Guys, I want you to know I'm, we might joke around about this, but please don't don't no, break into no, people's don't, houses. Yeah, don't, yeah, break don't, into don't people's actually. Houses. That, that's a good way to get shot. Yeah, I, I'll be the first one to tell you, you break into my <laughs> house, you're getting shot. So I would assume that if I'm breaking into somebody else's house, I'm also getting shot. If I catch I you steaming my my windows up, I'm at least coming outside with a steel baseball bat that I keep right next to the door. So, I, I mean. If I catch you steaming my windows up, I'm going to steam my windows up right back. <laughs> like, oh, you thought you were creeping me out? Let me creep you out. It's the same way I handle ghosts at night. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> no, seriously, though, uh, everybody that joined us for this episode, thank you. Um, the, like like we said, this was originally going to be a one-piece thing, and I'm so glad that we're doing it as a mini-series, because we shouldn't be skipping anything in that book. It's all fucking important. Yeah, it is. Right? It really is. If it wasn't important, Bobby wouldn't have included it. And no offense to the little red book, but like I said last time, this is easier for me to comprehend. Yeah. Right. Real life examples of putting these um, these terms that we're learning while reading Marxists and Maoist, you know, books and stuff. This is how well, to apply it in real life. Well, and More besides reliable. that, besides that, the little red book was written in a completely different culture, in a completely different language. Right. At a completely different time. Well, right. not really. Actually, it was only, what, 1949 to 1966. Yeah, but, like, compared to this, I'm closer to the Black Panther. Oh, yeah, party. yeah. Like... <laughs> Time space wise, I'm closer to the Black Panther Party than I am to Mao's revolution in China. Right. Especially the space wise, because this is a lived experience we can relate to also being in America and seeing this shit firsthand for decades, you know? Yeah. I also really like this because I grew up under the impression that the Black Panther Party was a racist terrorist organization. Yep, that's that was the way, if Red they're mentioned propaganda. at all, exactly. If if that's or if they're mentioned at all in like history classes and shit, that's how they're talked about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's fucking wrong. 
It's just absolutely fucking wrong. How dare they? Right. I didn't know fuck all about the Black Panther Party's actual teachings and actions until I heard about Asada Shakur and started looking into it and was like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is not terrorism. This is freedom fighting. Oh, man, this one, this one is copyrighted, Rob. (laughs) It sounds like something from, like, Mario Brothers or Tetris. Trisha, you should, you, you should recognize this just as much as I do. I I I mean, it's called Zelda and Chill. Oh. I I know you played it. I did. I did. Dude, we're talking about almost 40 years ago. I'm thinking that they changed the, uh, the key... Or they did. something. They did change the key. Yeah. Well, that and it's only cutting through in my audio a little bit. I'm only hearing bits and pieces of it, so not enough to actually even hear the melody, really. Unless we all shut up for a moment like that. The one time we do and you start talking. <laughs> I know. No, anyway, though, um... Again, everybody that that came out for this, thank you. And anybody who wants to be involved in doing more things like this, um, obviously we're gonna revisit the Little Red Book. Um, It might not be necessarily soon, but it'll be more in depth than it has been. And it will be uh, as a mini series like this is. But- We're also looking for writers and content creators to help us out. Yes. Yes. Not just on these shows, but um, if you want to produce any written content for publishing, um, you know, on the website, have your own column. All right. Good talk. Indeed. All right. Good night, everyone. Thank you.